What's up, guys? Thank you all for checking out this edition of the New Generation Sports Talk Podcast. I am your host, EJ Stewart, and we got a great show lined up for you guys today. We'll be talking NBA playoffs, giving you guys a breakdown of all the events in the postseason thus far. We're recording this podcast on a Wednesday night where we saw three monster matchups in the Eastern Conference. The Boston Celtics go up 2-0 on the Nets after protecting home court and winning game two, outscoring the Nets by 12 points in the fourth quarter. We'll also talk about the the Sixers going up a commanding 3-0 over the Toronto Raptors, following a game winner from Joel Embiid in overtime on the road in Toronto. The Chicago Bulls, maybe in the biggest surprise of the night, Tying the series with the with the Milwaukee Bucks 1-1. The war of attrition starting to wear on the Bucks a little bit. Not only did they lose this game, but they lost Chris Middleton to a MCL sprain. That injury certainly does not sound good. That's the kind of injury you would think would cost him some time. We'll see how much time that will end up being, but I would be a little surprised. Definitely if he plays in game three. He might not play the rest of the series when you consider MCL sprains. I guess the severity of it will have to be determined by an MRI. But we're going to talk about these games. We'll talk about the other series going on. Of course, we have some some pretty great Western Conference series happening. How about those New Orleans Pelicans, man? New Orleans Pelicans tying up their series 1-1 with the Phoenix Suns. Heroic performances by Brandon Ingram. Heroic performances by C.J. McCollum, Jose Alvarado, great job by Willie Green. I know our brother Henry, who's a big Pelicans fan, will, will definitely be smiling hearing this conversation about the Pelicans. And by the way, as I continue this podcast, you notice right now it's only me talking. This is a solo act for me tonight. Kendall, who's normally my my, my partner in crime in this, out this week. Um, we're expecting to have him back next week. So that'll be fun to kind of get his thoughts on the NBA playoffs. So right now, it's just going to be me, EJ Stewart, flying solo for the rest of this show. But the Western Conference has also been, like I said, really solid. How about the Minnesota Timberwolves? That series being tied with Memphis, though the the Grizzlies rocked them in game two. Definitely, I think, some reasons to maybe pause for some of these teams that are higher seeds that are in these 1-1 series, whether it be the Bucks, whether it be the Suns, whether it be the Grizzlies. They always say an NBA, players, an NBA series doesn't start until the home team loses. Well, we've had quite a few home teams that were heavily favored lose early games in this postseason. We'll talk about what the chances are that maybe any of these teams get clipped in this first round. We also didn't mention some of these commanding uh, 2-0 leads that we have beyond just the Celtics 2-0 lead. And, of course, the Sixers having a 3-0 lead. Golden State Warriors, Steph Curry and Jordan Poole lighting it up in San Francisco these first few games. Especially Jordan Poole, 29 points game two, 30 in game one. Denver haplessly seeking answers fighting each other, fighting the refs. It's not a good look right now for Denver. Not a good look at all. I'll talk about Denver a little bit in that series. Um, it's going to be a fun show. I'm really excited to talk about a lot of these games. How about Dallas and Utah? 
I tweeted it, man. I felt like Utah. They have a glass draw. I, you know. You got you to gotta give credit where credit is due with Dallas. Jason Kidd's doing a phenomenal job. I think that for a lot of folks like myself who were very skeptical of that hiring, you have to look at that and say, hey, maybe Mark Cuban got the last laugh on this one because Jason Kidd is doing a damn good job. The Mavs have improved as a defensive team. Jalen Brunson running the point has been phenomenal. We'll see if they could keep him this offseason, but... He was sensational in game two. And doing this all without Luka Doncic competing against the Utah Jazz team, that I think a lot of people expected to romp uh, the, the Dallas Mavericks in this series. You got to give credit to Jason Kidd. But, man, Utah, what's going on? This is a series where with Luka Doncic out with the calf strain, you would have considered the Jazz a heavy favorite. And to lose that game in game two, letting Jalen Brunson go crazy, letting uh, Maxi Cleaver Look like Dirk Nowitzki, just raining threes. I don't know. It's something about that team that just doesn't quite click with me, and I've really given them a lot of rope, maybe more so than others who already jumped off that bandwagon long ago. But that was just an ugly loss. It, it, the series is not over, obviously, and the Jazz did get game one, which is, the, is, is all that matters. Like I said, in these series, you want to get one of those first two games you're the road team, but... That was a time where you could have really stomped in their throat and gave Dallas no hope in this series. Now they go into Utah, which is a tough environment, but they go in there with a little bit of hope. So we'll break down that series as well. We'll have to talk about the, the also the remaining Eastern Conference series that I did not mention. The Atlanta Hawks down 0-2 to the Miami Heat. Jimmy Butler with a sensational performance in Game 2. Trey Young turning the ball over 10 times in that game and immediately asking what's the deal with the foul calls or the lack thereof, in his opinion, in game two. So we got a lot to talk about in this podcast. It should be a fun one. Like I said, it's EJ Stewart here flying solo. My guy, Kendall, normally my partner in crime, not with me today, but the show goes on. And I'm going to start, I'm going to start with Brooklyn. I'm going to start with this Brooklyn-Boston series. I think by far the most fascinating series in this postseason for basketball reasons and non-basketball reasons. The basketball reasons are clear. You know, obviously KD and Kyrie, two of the most outstanding one-on-one players in the game, two of the best scorers in the game, coming in as a seven seed against a Boston Celtic team that has really come together in the second half of the season under head coach M.A. Udoka in his first year. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown continue to ascend to further stardom. I think they're both clearly stars, but uh, perhaps superstardom now around the corner for both of those guys. The basketball reasons are there. Kyrie against Marcus Smart, defensive player of the year. Well-deserved for Marcus Smart. But then there are the non-basketball reasons that also make this very interesting. This ongoing feud between Kyrie Irving and the Boston Celtics fans, which culminated in a $50,000 fine for Kyrie Irving for his conduct during game one, which included cursing out some of the fans that were cursing him out, quite frankly, (laughs) flipping them off with middle fingers. Pretty wild scene in game one 
from Kyrie Irving. And game two gave us another classic. Right away, talking about game one, all that other stuff aside, we also had a buzzer beater <laughs> on a layup, which is is super rare. Jason Tatum scoring on a, on a, on a layup from Marcus Smart, a really great play in game one. Uh, being poised, understanding the moment, not forcing a bad shot, getting it over Tatum to, to win that game, a game that you know Boston, I, I told Kendall, Who's not on the pod, obviously, but we talk all the time. I said that I thought Boston had no business winning that game, given how poorly they played in the fourth quarter. Boston absolutely stole that one on that Tatum layup. Then we moved to game two in this series. Brooklyn, again, still with a great shot to go back to New York. Tied 1-1, where you got to feel very, very good about your chances in this series. And... You get a stinker from your guys. Kevin Durant did make 18 free throws, which you'll take, but 4 for 17 from the field. Absolutely could not buy a basket in the second half. He was 0 for 10. Kyrie Irving, 4 for 13. He only took two free throws, so there wasn't nearly as much production from the free throw line from him. A pretty quiet game, only one assist. It really was, you know, the Bruce Brown and Goran Dragic show. I mean, those guys really helped keep Brooklyn in this game with their play throughout the night. I thought Bruce Brown gave them exceptional minutes tonight, as he usually does in that weird power forward, 6'4 power forward role he plays with them. But to me, I look at this game as a, a, a true missed opportunity for the Brooklyn Nets. And the panic button... If it's not been hit, it needs to be smashed, hammered, flared, whatever you, <laughs> whatever situation you're talking about in terms of the level of concern for the Brooklyn Nets. I think it needs to be at an all-time high with where they're at right now going down 0-2. And look, again, as I said prior, you got to have a road team win before either team should feel good or bad necessarily about how they their standing is in a series. For Boston, the good you won these two games, but if you really want to feel comfortable in this series, you definitely want to try to get one in Brooklyn. So their work is certainly not done at all. And for the Nets, you know, you say, okay, we, we dropped those first two games, but they were very close. We didn't get typical Kevin Durant performances in either game. So you feel like, okay, we need to get two in Brooklyn, but you still like your chances a little bit. You were definitely in both of these games. But that's honestly kind of why I would be super concerned if I'm the Brooklyn Nets. Because in game one, you had a super heroic performance from Kyrie Irving. I'm not really here to go into his issues with the fans and flipping them off. You know, First of all, that would have been a story maybe to do days ago. But now we're in game two and that kind of stuff is kind of second, definitely secondary at this point. It was a spectacle, but now we're talking real ball, and the Nets could care less about what's going on with Kyrie and the fans at this point. They're trying to keep their season alive. But you get this Herculean performance from Kyrie Irving in game one. He puts up 39 points. He made, I think, like 9 to 10 shots in a row one point in the second half. I mean, he was absolutely unstoppable. And he gets in those zones sometimes where you watch him play, and people will laugh and joke that he calls himself an artist. Kyrie has weirdo tendencies for sure. Himself calling himself an artist has never been something that I found weird. Because you watch him play and you 
have either played basketball or you know basketball on a high level. The guy is 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 it's, it is a pure pleasure to watch this guy operate when he's going. And that's the kind of mode he was in in terms of the offensive zone he was in in Boston in game one. But you get that kind of game from game one. You see that terrible Boston performance in the fourth quarter. And you got Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, two of the best closers, and you don't get it done. You don't steal that game one. Boston, in fact, steals game one. Stealing a game at home, not necessarily a a, a, a euphemism that you're expecting to hear when it comes to postseason basketball in the NBA. But that's what we saw. Boston, the home team, the two seeds, stole game one. And then you get to game two, where you're able to get a, a 16, 17-point lead in the first half. And you're up double digits in the fourth quarter, despite Kevin Durant's poor shooting. Despite Jason Tatum struggling from the field, he finished only 5 for 16. And you can't finish that game. You can't get that one. The first game, at least you could say, well, Tatum pretty much, I wasn't, he wasn't as good as Kyrie, but he, 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 he gave almost as good as he got. He had about 30 in that first game. But here you get a subpar Jason Tatum game. And you have a big lead in the first half and double-digit lead in the fourth quarter. And you still can't find a way to get that done. I've said it before on this podcast, and I'll say it again. There's something about the Nets and their aura that still just doesn't quite feel right. And seeing the reaction to this loss really kind of drove it home for me more than I would have liked it to do, liked it, liked for it to do if I was a Nets fan, hoping that my feelings about this <laughs> weren't true. But you lose this game, you go down 0-2, and as a team, when you're talking to the media, when you're talking as a, as amongst yourselves, you, you can't act like you're panicking. That's, of course, ridiculous, and you want to be calm in these situations. The panic is the panicking leads to further poor play and probably a sweep, so you don't want to panic internally. But there's a sense of urgency that needs to be instilled and needs to take over when you get to this situation. And what I've seen from the Nets too often when they face adversity is instead of kind of looking in the mirror and say, hey, we need to change things and change them fast, they tend to lean on the circumstances being unfavorable to them as to why they don't get it done. And that's why when I talked about the Nets post the James Harden trade when they got Ben Simmons and I said well this actually might have been posted I know the the trade and the vaccine mandate kind of were coincided very close together so pardon me if one was before the other but around that time whenever we realized that Kyrie Irving was going to play home games and James Harden was in Philly (laughs) whenever that was all straightened out I said I don't hear any more excuses from this team I don't because because this fan base in this franchise, pretty much since Kyrie and KD stepped foot in Brooklyn, and I would argue maybe even you could argue in the Prokhorov days, they've been excuses hour. I know they 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 were they were scary hours they were scary hours when James Harden was in town, 
But since then, they've been excuses hour. It's been, oh, well, KD is hurt. It's been, oh, well, Kyrie can't do it by himself. Then it was, oh, well, we got to trade these guys, but it's going to take some time to gel when they got Harden. Then it was, oh, well, Kyrie got hurt <laughs> in the playoffs. Then it was, oh, well, James Harden uh, got hurt, and now we can't win this series. It, like, when KD and Kyrie Irving made the decision to leave their respective teams and head to Brooklyn, it was billed, I thought, correctly at the time as a seismic change in the NBA. But really, what has changed in the NBA landscape with those two guys teaming up so far? And we're not talking about this is, oh, this is year one. Like, you can't jump out the window and, and say, oh, where are the results for, you know, for all the hype that they got coming to Brooklyn? But we're in year, like, four of this experiment. Kyrie Irving, well, year three. Kyrie Irving's been with the Nets since 2019, 2020. This is his third year in Brooklyn. KD has been there three years. He's played two seasons. He didn't play the first year because he had the Achilles issue. And Giannis won a championship. LeBron won a championship. I don't know. The Nets are seventh in the East this year, even though KD played most of the games. This whole landscape-changing move that was supposed to happen for the league with Kyrie and KD teaming up in Brooklyn has not been the case. So, throw out the fact that they're a 7 seed. We know what time it is when these two guys are healthy. When KD's played, they've been like a, a you know a 600 kind of win team and talking about the winning percentage. So, the expectations are still very high. And you're playing against a Boston Celtic team that they washed in the playoffs last year. And a Celtic team that I think people like, but rookie coach, young stars, a team that I think a lot of people like myself who did pick the Nets to win this series in six felt like was ripe for the taking for Brooklyn. Brooklyn didn't want to see a first-round matchup with Milwaukee. I don't think Brooklyn wanted to see Miami in a first-round matchup. Those are more battle-tested teams, teams that have been to the finals, won championships. They didn't want that kind of smoke in the first round. Boston, this nucleus, not having accomplished that much in the postseason, felt like a much better matchup for them. Matchup they would have welcomed. And you go down 0-2. And where I would be expecting frustration, a sense of urgency. I get excuses. Again, Steve Nash talking about this first round matchup so far, only losing, which mean, uh losing these first two games. Somehow seems to be saying that, hey, us losing these games out of our control. Apparently, in the post-game press conference tonight, Steve Nash said it's a new team with a lot of com- without a lot of common experiences to go through battles and learn from them. To kind of explain their ineptitude in these late-game situations against a team that, by the way, is also being coached by a rookie coach and a team that 
is also been kind of put together and revamped and changed in the last few years. And a team that does not have a guy who's won a championship on their roster. Brooklyn has two. At least two, maybe more. Definitely two. Yeah, two. Um, I don't think the Marshall Rogers hasn't won, so yeah. And those are their best players, not guys who are sitting on the bench. <laughs> Kyrie and KD, you know, best players. Kyrie Irving's hit game-winning shots in the finals, and KD's a two-time finals MVP. But here, Steve Nash is saying not having the quote-unquote common experiences in the battles is why they haven't gotten it done yet. This is an asinine comment from Steve Nash, who didn't seem to be doing anything during this collapse we saw in the fourth quarter, but clapping his hands and saying, come on, guys, let's go. You don't want to write the obituary yet, but man, Steve Nash hiring, not looking so good right now. Stock definitely down. And it's weird because when they hired Nash, it felt like he wasn't necessarily hired because he was this great X and O's guy. He wasn't necessarily hired because he had these great basketball principles that he could instill in this in this team. He was hired essentially to kind of be a babysitter. And kind of be a team psychiatrist. That's what he was. You say, hey, he may not have all this experience, but the guy's a Hall of Fame caliber player who's going to get the respect of the locker room. He's going to be able to encourage them the right way. He's going to understand his star players like Durant and, at the time, Harden and Kyrie because he's been through it with those guys in terms of being a, a you know a superstar MVP caliber player. But here... The team psychiatrist and the babysitter are saying, it's not your fault that you're losing these games. And there's nothing you can do about it. Because you don't got the experience. You haven't gone through the battles. That's what he's saying. So I definitely don't like that coming from Steve Nash. Kyrie Irving. Who's been very, very, <laughs> very loquacious in these first uh, few press conferences. A little bit prickly in the first game one press conference, which I don't really have a problem with. I don't really like him playing the semantics game with, I think it was Nick Friedel, uh about what's hostility and what's not hostility. He's, you know, he's complaining about fans cursing at him. And then when Nick, Nick Friedel, the reporter for ESPN says, you know, how do you handle this hostility? He says, well, it's not hostility, bro. And it's like, well, then why are you upset? And I don't know. Again, weirdo energy. But I digress. Kyrie talking about the Celtics team that they just lost two games to. You would think, hey, they're playing. They're, they're pretty confident. Let's maybe not give them any kind of signs that we're cracking, that maybe that we see that this team is ready to take the next step. Let's show that, hey, we're still united. Like we're still together. and we're, We still got something for these guys when we get back to Brooklyn. Kyrie did not get that memo because he was praising the Celtics. Saying that, hey, man, the time is right. The window is now for them to contend. He's calling the team that he's playing against championship contenders that, if all falls right, should win a title like now. <laughs> like, this is their chance. And they're already up 0-2-0. And they came into a series, surely they came in confident because they've won these first two games and they've battled. But... You know, in the back of their minds, they're thinking, yo, we're going up against two legit Hall of Fame offensive 
supernova kind of players that can absolutely nuke this series if we let them. Or sometimes we might not have control. They might just do it by themselves. It might not be anything we let happen. They might, it might just happen. That's how good Kyrie and KD are. But now they're feeling a little confident after winning two games. And Kyrie's like, you guys have great reason to be confident. You guys have a championship window that you guys need to make. And it's right now, playing against us. And good news, you're up 2-0. So Steve Nash is saying, we're losing because we ain't got no experience. Even though you have a two-time finals MVP on your team. Kyrie Irving's won a championship, been in multiple NBA finals. I think he was in three in a row at one point. Or two in a row at one point. No, yeah, three in a row. He didn't play a lot in the first one in Cleveland. But but they don't have enough experience. Goran Dragic has been in the NBA Finals. This is just a ridiculous statement, the more you think about it. And Kyrie Irving is saying, well, the guys that were getting our ass kicked by, they're trying to win a championship, and their window is now. So they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. I don't know. Like, that just doesn't sound like a team to me with any kind of sense of urgency. Um, I don't like the mindset right now. This is bad. And I thought that some of the pom-pom cheering I saw from Kyrie's game one performance and that first game and feeling like the Nets really did something in that first game was over the top considering they lost. I thought that was a game that they, they couldn't give away. I don't know how you lose a game. Kyrie has 39, makes eight or nine shots in a row. And you have a lead late in the fourth quarter, and you 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 lose essentially on a defensive breakdown at the buzzer in a game where Boston couldn't score in the fourth quarter. You can't lose that game. And you double that up with blowing a, a lead in the fourth quarter in the next game. The only thing to take away from these games positive for the Nets is you were definitely in these games for sure. You, you were not well, you were dominating the first half of this game for sure in game two, but you were in control for large portions of both games one and two. So you play with the right mentality, and some shots start falling for for guys that weren't falling in games one and two, particularly KD. And you hope Steve Nash can draw up some adjustments, some any. <laughs> we didn't see many in these first two games, but if he does any. You feel like, okay, you got a good shot in games three and four in Brooklyn at home. But the one last thing I'll say about this series that is also alarming for the Nets is, you know, KD's performance, and and KD's a great player. You know, I I expect him to play really well in games, at least in game three, the game they got to get. And I think he'll play better in Brooklyn overall. But am I the only one who felt KD looked a step slow in these first few games? Like, this was the first time I feel like I ever watched KD operate offensively and felt he looked old compared to the guys he was playing against. They were playing physical. They have been roughing them up. They're following them. That's why he had 20 free throws tonight. But Jason Tatum blocked his shot twice in this series already. You know, KD's jump shot, the pull-up jump shot, the unblockable shot, it's like the Kareem Skyhook where we've seen no, like no one block it in their entire career. Like, we've seen Giannis do it once, and then Mitchell Robinson did it earlier this year. Jason Tatum, who's like four or five inches shorter than KD, blocked his shot twice. Doesn't seem to be getting the same lift. He may not be 100%. I don't know. I I don't want to make excuses for him. 
and and I'm really not ready to make excuses for him. Again, to me, he looks a step slow. He looks a little. He looks. He looked. He looked older to me. First time I've ever said that about Kevin Durant. Now, dude's a killer, and him coming out and dropping a forty piece in game two, or game two, game three, would not surprise me. But Boston has been sticking him well. The defensive game plan has been really solid. Nets are going to score some points. You're going to have to give up some stuff to Brown, give up some stuff to Dragic. But overall, in these first two games, you give up 114 in game one. That was on 39 points from Kyrie Irving and a masterful, masterclass second half from him. You give up 107 in game two. I feel like they feel comfortable living in that range with the Brooklyn Nets in terms of scoring. The 114 to 107 range, Boston can score that. Because the Nets can't guard them. That's the other problem. Nets are playing zero defense. And they, they're they a bad defensive team. So that's not necessarily surprising. I think some of the better defense we've seen from them, and we saw in the play-in against Cleveland, and we saw a little bit late in the season, I think some of that was fool's gold. Now they're playing against an, an actually good def, uh, offensive team. Not a great offensive team, but a good one. I think some of those weaknesses and cracks are starting to show a little bit worse in this series. So yeah, not 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 a lot of good things to take from the Brooklyn Nets, man. I'm not giving up on them because Kyrie and KD are too damn great, I think, to go out like this. But there are signs to me that that there are signs that look bad, signs that people are saying again, oh, it's close games, they could turn around, trust that KD and Kyrie will figure it out. I get it. But I think to ignore some of the the kind of glaring issues we're seeing from the Brooklyn Nets would be fool's errand, in my opinion. Quickly going around the rest of the Eastern Conference, let's just stay in the games we had just this this Wednesday night. Philadelphia, hell of a shot by Joel Embiid to really kind of finish the Toronto Raptors. They're up 3-0. Of course, the series still continuing, but... No team has ever come back from a 3-0 lead in NBA history. I don't expect the Toronto Raptors to be that here. I got to admit, this is another series I look very badly wrong about. <laughs> Shout out to us not doing official an official NBA playoff podcast preview because I had the Toronto Raptors winning this series in about six or seven games. I forgot what my official number was when I filled out my bracket. But the first two games, I was surprised, I was surprised at how difficult it was for Toronto to guard Philly, especially because they guarded them so well in the regular season. They played great defense tonight. Um, but Toronto offensively is leaving a lot to be desired, and that has hurt them. Um, they had some great performances tonight, particularly from Preston Achua. Uh, Ananubi I thought was really good. But they, they just haven't gotten Fred Van Vliet going, and that, that's really giving them no shot. You know, Van Vliet's been a, a great player for them this year. He's been a great player in this league for a while. But, of course, an all-star season this year. We've seen in, in, in recent seasons and post-seasons past, this team kind of is going to go, in the post-Kawhi years, is going to go the way Van Vliet and Siakam take them. And right now, those guys are having really rough series. But shout-out to Doc Rivers. He deserves a shout-out because he gets a lot of crap. <laughs> a lot of it deserves. The guy's blown, like, multiple 3-1 series leads, which is just, like, unheard of for the same person to do that 
but he's done it multiple times. But in that last play in game three, you know, Kendall and I just had a conversation before me going on this podcast. It was actually impetus to, to record it tonight. I had been on the fence about, should I do it solo? Should I do it tonight? Should I do it another time? But talking to him, I was like, man, I got to get on the mic and talk NBA basketball. I got to talk. I was already upset that we didn't get to do a true playoff preview, but I was by hook or crook going to be talking NBA playoffs this week. I got to give a shout out to Doc Rivers because that timeout he called, you know, won them, arguably won them the series. They may have won it anyway. We never, we never will know, obviously. But one of my biggest pet peeves watching basketball on any level is seeing a team on a final possession where clearly they're having a very difficult time getting a good shot. Maybe they're even in danger of turning the ball over, which is what happened in that last, in the previous possession with Joel Embiid when pressure Chua knocked the ball away. How many coaches with, you know, one or even maybe multiple timeouts in their pocket just watch the play crash and burn and don't do anything? And you end up getting a, a no shot or, or, or a turnover. And sometimes you lose big games over those kind of possessions. But Doc Rivers being a seasoned veteran coach, Seeing that disaster unfold, potentially, ran and and got a timeout called. Now, the referee actually didn't see him early enough to even give them more time on that last possession. But he did the right thing. He didn't be a spectator there. He actually was a coach. and He managed the last possession well. Didn't call a timeout going up because he wanted to see them try to get something without Toronto being able to set up their defense. That was, I thought, good strategy. Totally fine with that. We saw Emi Udoka do that in game one in the Boston series. You know, Embiid, I thought, did a, 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 did a, a, he had a great game, but did a little bit of a poor job holding the ball too long in that stretch. And he, you know, he, the, the regulation he settled for, a step back three, which I don't think you really want to see him taking those kind of shots. In this possession, he's posted on the three-point line, and he's not, he wasn't moving the ball. He wasn't really doing anything. And he was just killing the clock. So he didn't really manage that possession that great. But shout out to Doc Rivers for getting that timeout once that ball got knocked away and then B was trapped in that corner. Because it set it allowed them to then set up the game winner for Embiid to get a good look from three as opposed to the step back three he took in regulation from around the same spot. In rhythm, in rota in, in rhythm, and, and he just nailed it. Philly may still have a James Harden problem. He wasn't that great in this game. He fouled out. He did have ten assists. Which he he's kind of gonna get by osmosis. He, what I've seen from James Harden is he's just not the dynamic scorer he once was, and it might not be the worst thing in the world. But I think given what Philly gave up for him, what they're expecting, it's something to note. I think what lessens the blow is Tyrese Maxey's emergence. He had a nineteen game nineteen point performance tonight. He looks like the real deal. He really looks like the second option, honestly. And he took 18 shots compared to Harden's 13. I think he is the second option at this point. And he looks like a pretty decent one. Like I don't think like he's a guy where he's the second option. You're like, oh, man, we're screwed. If he's the second option, your first is Embiid and Harden's run the point, you're probably okay. And so far, Philly has been okay. This is a, a, a series that a lot of people said, look, for, for, look out for an upset. I thought for good reason. I picked Toronto. Philly... Give Doc Rivers, give that team, give Embiid and all these guys some credit. They're handling their business when a lot of people didn't think they would. 
Chicago-Milwaukee. What a weird series this has been. I don't think Milwaukee has played a good game yet in this series. And I think Brooklyn's situation is kind of maybe clouding what I think is real concern for the Milwaukee Bucks. Let's just start, number one, with the obvious. Chris Middleton has a sprained MCL. And we, we've seen, you know, with with any kind of sprain, it always comes down to the grade of the sprain. Is it a grade one, grade two, grade three? It all depends on the damage done to the ligament. Certain sprains are, you know, where a ligament is torn. That's a higher strain sprain, and that will, of course, leave you out for an extended amount of time. You know, grade one sprain, you know, maybe you're out for a week or two. It might not be that bad. I think they won't probably know that until he gets an MRI. But MCL sprain, not good. Not good at all. And, and you would expect him to miss at the very least. I would even say the very least next two games. I was definitely next, next game for sure. But I'm almost certain he's going to be out the next two games. So that gives you probably a week until the next games are back in Milwaukee. And that's like the, the, the pie in the sky situation. But he could be out for the whole series he could be out until maybe even the conference finals if they get there or even the finals that's how serious an mcl sprain can be so you're down middleton that's bad news <laughs> already but then let's talk about these games I, I feel like milwaukee has really kind of played you know maybe a c plus to b minus game in game one and then i give them like a c tonight they they've not really put together they, they haven't really put together really like a good half or a good considerable amount of of of, of play in this uh series you know maybe you say the first half against game one was okay but their nba championship team they won an nba championship obviously you know they didn't coast to the regular they had a good decent regular season but they weren't necessarily, you know, pedal to the metal in the regular season. Part of that is them trying to gear up for the postseason. I feel like when you see these teams that win championships that are favorites or at least teams that are considered championship contenders to potentially repeat, you kind of like to see them start that first round with a bang, send a message, tell everybody that, hey, we're here, and whatever you might have got away with in the regular season against us this is a different time period in the season and you know kind of throw that weight around a little bit but i mean milwaukee has not done that against chicago and and then you're playing against a team in chicago who we all wrote off no lonzo ball there's a dreadful end to the season rosen seemed to be running out of gas levine seemed to be running out of gas they just they look like a team that was just kind of (laughs) waiting to get to the playoffs get eliminated in the first round and see what they do in the offseason whether it's more changes or just trying to get healthy for next year and, and make another run at it. But the Bulls, despite a terrible form from DeRozan, were right in it in game one, which didn't make much sense. And in game two, DeRozan got cooking. And like I tweeted today, he, he beat the, the fraud charges. People at the game one were yelling to DeRozan, man. Playoff fraud, all this crazy stuff. He had a phenomenal regular season, but of course we know some of the the, the short the shortcomings we've seen from DeRozan's Raptors teams when he was playing with them. And I was hearing DeRozan's a fraud after game one. Well, he shut them people up in game two, 41 points. 
16 for 31 from the field. Just an assassin in the mid-range. He's also he also made all his free throws nine for nine. And I think what's what's troublesome for me is DeRozan can repeat this performance. That's why I'm very concerned about the Bucks. I felt like Game One was more of an aberration. Than I think maybe most people did. A lot of people really thought, oh, well, it's just DeRozan folding like he always does in the playoffs. I thought Milwaukee guarded him pretty well, but I don't think he's really a good matchup for Milwaukee in, in theory, especially when Chris Middleton is out, which he will be, because, you know, they're guarding him mostly with Wesley Matthews, who's like 6'4", because the Rose can shoot over him at any time he wants. Matthews is a very good defender, but I don't know. I just don't think that's a guy that DeRozan is worried about. Middleton would be the other guy, but Middleton's now out, so... He doesn't got to worry about him. Milton's also a very good defender. Now you're looking at Connaughton. You're looking at Grayson Allen. I told Kendall, you know, I wonder if, if Giannis gets time on him now. Because I think he's going to have another big game in, in Chicago, either in game three or game four. This, I thought, would probably be a five-game series at most. This looks like a six-game series now, at least maybe seven. This is not going to be easy for the Bucs. And it's going to be a good test for Giannis because he he's a champion. And I think his credentials are certified. All those people saying he had no skill, all that nonsense we heard from last year, that's all done and, and, and dead and gone, thank God. But I, I want to see him face a little adversity here. You don't got your, your 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 Robin, so to speak. And you got a a guy who packed that thing too in DeMar DeRozan. He's going to have to be great for them to win this series. It's no longer they could just play the way they normally play and kind of coast to a series win, which I think we all thought they could. Now they're going to have to sweat a little bit. And I think I think the Chicago home court advantage at the United Center, I expect it to be great. You know, I think, like I said, the way the season ended and then heading into the postseason, then you get the first-round matchup with the Bucks. I, th- I think a lot of the excitement we saw from the, the organization and the fan base in Chicago – you know, it was kind of dissipated a little bit. You know, it was because you, know, you kind of say, okay, this season that we had a lot of high high hopes for, maybe it looks like a first round exit. Maybe we were jumping the gun a little bit in terms of the excitement of what we could do. I mean, you win a game on the road against the champs in the first round series, they lose their second best player. You don't wish for injury at all, of course, but just you know, explaining the, the parameters of what the series is now. It kind of reminds me a lot of what's happening in New Orleans, in New Orleans with that series with the Suns. You say, "Hey, yo, I want you to put the word out there that we back up." I think Chicago is back up. I think this is going to be a very, very tough thing for the Bucks to to get through. This is not going to be a cakewalk anymore. So, really good action, really good action in uh on Wednesday night, first night. Well, first night I haven't been working. I, we did I did do several podcasts tonight. Um, so I I was uh, working you know on new generation stuff, not working on my my job job. But first night not working on my job job, getting to watch a lot of these games was great. Some really great action all night. The last Eastern Conference series we should discuss is the Miami series. Miami up two zero on the Atlanta Hawks. Trey Young's in hell playing against this team. Uh, he did have 20 points, I believe, and 10 assists, but he had like 10 turnovers too. Uh, he had seven assists in the last game, right? 25 points, seven assists, but 10 turnovers. That 
is a near cripple double. Shout out to Mike D'Antoni who came up with that uh, euphemism. Yeah, Jimmy Butler, man. When, Jimmy Butler is a he he's such an interesting NBA figure because I think most NBA observers respect Jimmy as a dog, as a star player, and as an all-around tough guy, <laughs> you know. But I, I, you know, I don't know if he necessarily gets the respect he deserves as a true killer as an offensive weapon. Part of it, I think, is his own doing. He's not never. He's never really been a guy that's been predicated on making sure he gets his in terms of points. He's kind of very comfortable just, you know, taking what the defense gives them, allowing other guys in their team like Hero, certainly not afraid to jack it up, Lowry, Robinson, Bam. He's not, he's not, not allowed, he's not, uh, excuse me, he's not afraid of letting those guys take over games and, and get in the rhythm and even playing a backseat to those guys sometimes. But as we saw in that, run they had to the finals in the bubble, Jimmy could tap into a different mode sometimes where he just looks like unstoppable and like it's an offensive threat. Especially when he starts hitting the three ball, which he was four out of seven in game two. Last year in the postseason, the, the Heat just, they were one, two, three Cancun. I don't know what that series was with the Bucks last year. They got ravaged by COVID, they had injuries. They just, they didn't want anything to do with that playoffs. It was crazy to watch. Um, but Jimmy Butler seems to be tapping back into that mode we saw in the bubble where when he's going like this, he's one of the best 10 players in the game. This, we don't see this Jimmy that often. Let me be clear. He's not like this all the time, but when he taps into this, which is what we saw in that game two, guy's unstoppable. And he's a two-way monster, which makes him even more dangerous. The Hawks are have been a great offensive team this year. They've been a little bit stifled in this series, which is maybe to be expected a little bit against the Heat because, one, the Heat are an excellent defensive team. Spolstra, excellent defensive coach. Gabe Vincent, shout out to him, man. The guy's playing some great defense on Trey Young in this series. But also, Atlanta's a terrible road team, which is why I think of all the teams that are down 0-2, this is the team I would be least concerned about which may be crazy because this is the 1-8 matchup. I do have, I did have this series prior to the playoffs starting going seven games to Miami. No, the, the Capella thing is, is, is definitely a concern. But the Hawks are, are an entirely different team at home. And Knicks fans who dealt with them last year and, and, and Sixers fans who dealt with them last year, they could all attest to just how dangerous the team is at home. But even in this regular season, they finished the season winning 20 of their last 23 games at home. And just historically, the, the Hawks have always been a miserable road team, especially in the highlight era, the highlight, uh, you know, the highlight era Atlanta Hawks, highlight factory. That was the word I was looking for. Uh, era Hawks, they've always been a terrible road team. That hasn't changed in the Trey Young era. So them getting... Manhandled in game one. I thought they fought well in game two. They had a great performance from Bogdan and Bogdanovich, who remains one of my just like favorite favorite players in the league. That's like not a star. Everybody has like favorites. You know, you know, you know. It's kind of boring, I think, to just say, "Oh my, I love LeBron," and 
Yeah, I do love Steph, but I love LeBron and Steph and Luka Doncic. Like, you know, it's nice to have some guys that are kind of random guys in the league. Say, oh, I love this guy. Like, every time I watch him, he always impresses me. Uh, I've always been a fan of Bogey, and he really seems the only guy to be comfortable in this series so far, which is not that surprising. He's he, he's He hasn't been in the league a long time, but he's an older player, and he's been in some wars in, 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 uh, in Europe, so... Him stepping out, I'm not that surprised. I think you'll see these other guys step out. I, I can't imagine that Trey Young's going to be this ineffective three games in a row or four games in a row. That, that would surprise me. And he's going to get better whistle at home. He was complaining about the whistle after this loss. It was pretty ridiculous to me because, I don't know, they called a lot of fouls for him. And he had to refute the line four times, which isn't a ton, but... The guy also took 10 threes, so it's like, I mean, you're not really pushing the issue in terms of trying to get to the basket, and you're kind of bailing him out, taking so many threes. But we know what it is with Trey Young and the officials and the refs and the fouls. He's going to get more calls at home. So, And I think the Heat, the Heat do, they look great in these first two games, but seeing kind of how they maneuvered through the regular season, they had some weird blow-ups in the middle of the season for a team that was, number one seed they had stretches where they just looked awful especially in the second half they strike me as a team that could dominate the first two games and then go on the road and look totally different too like i that doesn't that wouldn't surprise me at all but it's gonna start with trey young it's gonna start with uh pushing the tempo and they gotta do something about jimmy butler deandre hunter is is has been a plus defender his entire career in the league he don't seem to have many answers now. They might have to start sending doubles or doing something to help him out. Gallo has no chance. They should never try to get Gallo on him. Maybe John Collins gets more time. I don't know. There's things they can do. They got they got bodies. They they just gotta figure it out. But I'm not I'm not necessarily abandoning the Hawks as of right now. Let's talk about some of these Western Conference series. A lot of interesting things happening. I think starting with the 1-8 matchup there, since we just were in the 1-8 matchup in the East. As I said before, how about those New Orleans Pelicans, man? A playing team that was not one of the top eight teams. They had to win a game to get a chance to get into the playoffs with another playing game. And then had to go on the road and beat the Clippers. This is a team that only won 36 games this year. Now, we know the situation with the injuries they've dealt with. Zion not playing all year. So they've seen some things, <laughs> to say the least. But they've stuck through it. Willie Green, I think, has done a decent job in his first year dealing with a lot of the adversity. And here they are. Now they're in the playoffs. It doesn't, all that stuff doesn't matter now. This, it's a new season. Everything's 0-0. And after getting kind of, you know, Chris Paul just, you know, ate him up in game one, which... Is to be expected coming off those very emotional first two playing games and your first game against the Suns. Chris Paul smells blood. Uh, he's going up against former franchise. I know he played with the Hornets, not necessarily the Pelicans, but this is this is the franchise he actually played with. Very confusing. I'm not going to get into all how that makes sense, but it does. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> you guys expected game one, they were going to get washed. Game two, I didn't know what to expect. I really thought that the Pelicans could maybe do something in game one. Game two, rather, that was going to be their chance if they were going to make the series. I didn't really see this being a series going in, but it's looking a lot different now. Um, for a lot of different reasons, and one of the main reasons being Brandon Ingram, number one, you got to give credit to there. Brandon Ingram just looking fantastic in, uh, in this first game. The second game, rather. Hitting some clutch threes, clutch passes on the stretch. And it was great to see B.I. get to play on this stage. You know, he's been a good player in this league for a while. Been an all-star. 
most improved player. But because the Pelicans have really kind of underachieved over these past few years, we, we've never really gotten to see him play on this stage. But he was, I mean, he was just a killer in game two. And the Pelicans, excuse me, the Suns had no answer for him. And then the Devin Booker injury. This guy strained hamstring. The word, the early word is that he may miss the first two games of this set in New Orleans. Meaning he will be out for games three and four. That's really bad news. And this series is, is, is again, it's kind of like the Bucks series to me. Where, like, I think I kind of went in just kind of assuming, like, these would be the two most obvious series that would be very short and easy and we'd be done with it. I think these are both two real series now. The reason why, for the Pelicans, I, I would feel pretty good. You know, some people may say, oh, you know, don't just jump off the sun's bandwagon that easy. But... The, the, the Pelicans, arguably, from what I've seen from Ingram, and then C.J. McCollum was a professional scorer, man. Like we say in baseball, you have professional hitters. C.J. McCollum was a professional scorer. So what I've seen from Ingram, what I've seen from C.J., I, I totally understand Chris Paul and his greatness. And he, he showed in game one he could kill you with his shot. I expect him to be very aggressive in these games, looking for his shot in games three and four. But I don't know. I think I take my chances with the shot makers they have in New Orleans right now, late down the stretch. They might not be Chris, they might not be Chris Paul, but they can hurt you. They can win you games. We already saw B.I. win one on the road against the defending Western Conference champs. And most importantly, they got belief. Willie Green has been telling them that they could do this. They're playing very loose. They're playing very free. They're not afraid. And they got dangerous scorers. That's a that's a bad combination for the Suns. If you're not going into a series without your leading scorer, Devin Booker, who I think combined with Chris Paul are the straws that stir the drink. I think last year, Chris Paul got way too much credit for all the success the Suns had last year. Devin Booker is immensely important to everything that they do. I don't want to say the Suns are in trouble. I don't think the Suns and Bucks are in the net situation where you're smashing every panic button, but they're on high alert. This this is is now going to be a fight. This is also a series that I think will probably go at least six games. I I would be very surprised if the Suns won both of these games without Devin Booker. The New Orleans crowd is going to be electric. It's not a team is not a fan base that has necessarily always rallied around this team especially when they're losing hence my, maybe why some of these guys keep wanting to get out of there but when the Pelicans and the Hornets in their pre, prior, prior iteration when they've been good those playoff atmospheres have always been great and those tickets for these games three and four sold out immediately when they went on for sale after they won in those playing games those very um entertaining games you know the city's behind this team so i I think this is going to be a very fascinating series to continue to watch but my my thing right now is i would not sleep on the pelicans they would they would scare me with how they're playing 
something they're gonna have to get more from 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 some of the other guys. They're gonna have to find scoring from someone else. Now they've they've played long stretches of this year without Booker, so it's not gonna be super new for them. But they need more from Jake Crowder. He was two for eleven in the last game. That's not gonna get it done. They're gonna need more from the likes of uh, yeah one point game. Jesus, I mean, he's just been terrible. He can't play that in game four, and they expect to get two of these games. Uh, Bridges is like a great year. I expect him to step up, but he's going to step up in a major way. This is a home series. This is a, this is a home series. You know, the Zion shadows in the background. I don't think he's going to play this series, but I mean, man, what do you think about you lose Devin Booker and potentially add Zion? I mean, if I'm New Orleans, I wouldn't have even thought about playing Zion in this series, but almost seeing Devin Booker go down makes me think, well, shoot, like, they lose a guy. We had an all-star top forward. That was pretty good for us. You know, it's something I would think about. I can't lie. I would think about it. Also, shout out to the young players, too. We talk about Ingram and Kong a lot, and we should. Larry Dance is fantastic, too. But how about Trey Murphy? Even not necessarily just in this last game, but also how he played in the playing games. Trey Murphy's a guy that Kendall and I identified in our YouTube NBA draft videos a ton. He looked great in the preseason. For whatever reason, the regular season didn't go the way I think anyone thought it would who had watched Trey Murphy play <laughs> in the preseason in the summer league and, and then liked him coming out of the draft out of Virginia. But he's been playing a lot of minutes in these postseason games or pseudo postseason games, whatever you want to call the play-in, and he's played great. Herb Jones has had a phenomenal rookie year. Hell of a defender. Big shot maker. It's easy team to root for, New Orleans, right now. It's a very easy team to root for. And I think it's going to be a fun team to follow moving forward. Memphis and Minnesota. This is a weird series. This is maybe the most weird series, I think. Minnesota has that like triumphant game one. With that historic performance from Anthony Edwards. Edwards looks like he's going to be a problem for this entire series for Memphis. It just seems like he can get anywhere he wants to win the court. Which is kind of his game. Like It's not necessarily shocking that he can do that. He's a young player. He's still developing. So I think sometimes it's seeing if he can do it on a consistent level. But he's got all the tools. He was sensational in game one. Nobody was good in game two, but he was the best of a bad bunch in game two. I, I expect him to play very well at home. But the uneven form from Carlton Towns, he had that just miserable playing game against the Clippers. Then he had a great game one where he just annihilated Steven Adams. Then the last game, he was I thought he looked out of control in game two. He had five fouls. He couldn't stay out of foul trouble. Um, all the turnovers. Just look discombobulated. He looked a lot how he looked a lot, honestly, kind of how he looked in game in the playing game. He made shots better that game. He couldn't buy one, but the kind of out of control play that I've seen from him in these moments kind of reared his ugly head back in game two. Chris Finch didn't look very happy with the effort. He said that the Grizzlies just wanted game two more, which I would agree with that assessment. That's what I saw. And they needed it more. So, you know, it is what it is. But I don't know if I necessarily liked seeing a team be so happy just getting a split when you've accomplished nothing as a unit. You know, if the Nets won one of those first two games and they got blown out in the other game, you know, they got KD and Kyrie. Like, I think that they could probably pick and choose their spots a little better and feel confident they could take care of business when they need to. For the Timberwolves who have not really accomplished much with this team and not have a lot of veterans who have been through the playoffs, I don't want to see them kind of put the on and off button like that and flip the switch like that. They're not that kind of team. That was really so far. A little bit of a disheartening performance in game two. I did like John Morant taking the ownership for their struggles in game one, saying it was on him. He didn't even have an awful game, but he was not up to standard. And he really answered the bell in game two, almost had a triple-double, just just dominated the game. Doing what John Morant does. 
getting guys involved, pushing the pace. Just a phenomenal player overall. And I love the 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 bravado posting that, you know, Michael Jordan meme on Twitter, the video from the last dance of him after Charlotte had upset the Bulls in game one of the nineteen ninety eight Eastern Conference semifinals. BJ Armstrong was talking a lot of trash as he had some clutch shots down the stretch. And Jordan, in this clip that John Moran posted from The Last Dance, I, I tweeted before, like, he looks like a maniac in this in this video, by the way. He looks like a legit crazy person. It looks like someone that isn't a real person. But he's sitting there in the locker room with a cigar in his mouth with a baseball bat. And he's talking in a very calm voice about how, oh, no, I'm not worried about losing game one. It's not a big deal. It's very easy to talk trash after winning a game one and, you know, when your team has a lead. Let's see if they let's see if they do all that talking when it's, if the score is 0-0 zero, zero again. While he's like, sh- you know, you know, swinging his bat and getting his batting stance ready. He looks like a, a lunatic in this clip. And, you know, John Morant is that kind of dog. So uh, him seeing that clip and, and feeling like he felt that energy makes sense to me. Um but I love that he answered the bell and, and you know, backed up that talk and the memes with action. I mean, he he was about it. You know, to quote Kyrie from earlier in the week. Big decision made in this game by Taylor Jenkins, head coach of the Grizzlies, to sit Steven Adams after three minutes of play. He got the Alfred Payton treatment from last year's playoffs with the Knicks. He started the first he started the first uh three minutes. He got a flagrant foul. And another foul, he sat, and they didn't put him back in. And after the game, Jenkins said, look, I told him these other guys are going. Those other guys being, of course, Jackson playing at the five. Brandon Clark was playing well. Xavier Tillman had just a phenomenal game. And he said, I'm going to go with these guys. These guys are giving me what I need, and you're going to have to sit right now. And he probably saw that film of Stephen Adams getting cooked in game one was like, if I could avoid seeing that again, I will. And he saw other guys have more success in their uh, playing cat, and he said, I'm just going with those guys. Adams apparently took it as a professional, as he would expect. Steven Adams is, you know, in terms of character and locker room guys, one of the most certified dudes in the league. So I'm not surprised he, he seemed to take it well. But a big decision. Steven Adams, I, I think he's started every game he's been available this year for the Grizzlies. And he's been a good contributor for them. But... We've seen in the past him him not necessarily be the most effective postseason player when he was in Oklahoma City. I didn't really love the trade when they got him, but he's played well for the Grizzlies, so I really can't complain. But it's fascinating that after one game and three minutes and a flagrant foul in the first in the first quarter of Game Two, you know uh, Taylor Jenkins is pulling the hook. But that's what you love about the playoffs, like. I, it's kind of like what you see in, in Major League Baseball when you got, you know, starters who, you know, starting pitchers who may have had good seasons. But, you know, you're playing the playoffs. Every out matters and they kind of look a little skittish and you're, you're pulling them after the second inning. Maybe he's only giving up a run, but you're just like, I don't like the way this looks. That's you kind of see that stuff in the NBA, too. And this is kind of the equivalent of that with Steven Adams. I, I think what's really fascinating about this series is. What I've seen, at least in the, in the game one, and the success that Minnesota had was kind of why I was concerned about Memphis a little bit in this series, which is I felt like watching Memphis this year, they've been 
you know, a human highlight reel, essentially. And one of the things that has stood out to me in terms of their dominance has been just how overwhelming their athleticism is to a lot of these NBA teams, which is wild because they're NBA teams. You think about the athleticism these teams have. But the Grizzlies, I think, I just think they overwhelm me with just how fast, just how athletic, and just how quick they are at every position. And especially at the point guard with Ja pushing the pace. And when you look at Minnesota's roster, what I think what intrigued me about this series was I didn't feel like Minnesota would be as overwhelmed by Memphis's athleticism as maybe other teams would. Maybe even more talented teams. But, you know, Pat Bev is all about that life. He's all about the smoke. He's not afraid. He'll, you know, kneecap these guys before he allows them to, you know, catch an alley-oop on them. But you got Vanderbilt, you know, Anthony Edwards, maybe still the best athlete on the court. And that's including with John Moran and all these other guys. Uh, you got McDaniels. You got a Kogi. They got athletes out there. You know, Noel, like the, the, the Grizzlies, I mean, the Timberwolves have athletes. No one has athletes at the Grizzlies, but the Timberwolves got athletes. And I thought Cat could kill Steven Adams, which is what I saw in game one. So there were some things about this series I was like, I, don't, I think this is going to be tough. I think Grizzlies will drop some games. I was not shocked that they lost game one. I think that they will still win this series because they have a much deeper roster. The Timberwolves are not a very deep team. And the bench for for Memphis, which has been the best in the league, should kill Minnesota's bench, and we saw that in game two. They will probably have their way with them again in this series at certain points. But I think this is going to be a tough series. I think this is going to be a six-game series at least. It's been fun so far, but it's been weird. It was weird to go from that game one where Minnesota kind of surprisingly dominated a lot of that, excuse me, a lot of that game, and then go to game two and then just see Memphis just run them out the gym in the second quarter. But I'm digging these NBA playoffs so far. You know, we're, we're halfway through the, the Western Conference games here. Let's talk about... I'm going to leave Nuggets for the end. Let's talk Dallas, Utah. As I said before, man, really disappointed in the, the Utah Jazz. You know, Luka Doncic strained a calf last week of the season. It's terrible. Like, no basketball fans. You don't see anybody hurt, but you definitely don't want to see Luka Doncic's stats get, stats get hurt leading into the playoffs like that. Like, it's just, you know, terrible for everybody around. And terrible for him. Uh, other Jazz, you know, they do a job in game one. You know, weathering. That's one of them. them. You know, big punch and, and trying to uh, steal a game. Because, you know, they're kind of that Boston Celtics remember, like, Celtics stole game. I think Dallas was like, we got to steal one of these first two games. Just give us a chance. But Luka come back maybe later in the series. And other Jazz showed the kind of maturity late in the game that they needed to get enough stops to make enough plays to find a way to get a win. And other Jazz showed the game to kind of quelch Dallas' hope. And then get to game two. And he decided, yeah, we're not going to guard you guys today. <laughs> yeah, listen, yeah, get whatever you want. You know, a lot of that was on the guards. You know, I'm not going to put Rico Bear in the blender for getting across to get 41. They could not contain the ball at all. And if you can't contain the ball, you know, you're not going to have much of a shot. So I'm not going to about Go Bear, man. I mean, they got some stops. I'm and what you don't, what turns you is the guy who has a good game one and it's all I can do against the team. And he gets even more and more aggressive game two. He knows he can get his spots. He knows he can get good looks. He knows he can control the pace. And he can do whatever he wanted in game two. Mike Conley, just, he was ancient going to be a front in this first round. And the Jazz don't necessarily have like perimeter defenders like that where I feel like, oh, they have somebody they can put on him to maybe slow him down. I don't know who they're putting on him. I think they tried to work on him for a lot of that. Stretch, that really worked. Uh, Donovan's a good defender, but I mean, I don't think Conley's a stopper. Conley's supposed to be a defender. He should be able to contain the ball. He can do it. Nothing can do it. So this is like one of those series where Brunson's going to have a series. I don't know if he's got 41 again, but I, he's going to have a good game. The question would be, will you see this kind of light-stop three-point shooting that you saw from Dallas for the rest of the series? They were 22 or 47 from three, which is nuts. Maxi Cleaver had eight on his own. Cleaver, who had just been struggling mightily going into the series. You can't bet they're going to shoot that well, but if Brunson can continue to get into the paint and control the pace, you will think they'll get the looks, though. And they made 22 to win this game, and it was a close game, but they might not have to make 22 every time just to get wins here. 
And now you're hearing that Luka Doncic may give it a go in game three. I kind of don't. I don't know his health, so I don't want to just say talk out of my ass, so to speak. But to me, the the word is that right now is that he's questionable for game three. He was upgraded from doubtful, which is a good sign. It means he's doing better, it appears. But he's still questionable for a game that's tomorrow, and it's a calf. And we know calf injuries can be very tricky, where if you come back too soon, you could injure yourself much worse. I don't even want to think. I don't even want to. I'm not even gonna say it about what happened to KD. But we saw what happened there. So you want to be very careful. So my thing is, okay, if he's questionable for game three and he's doing better, but maybe you're pushing it, try to get him out there. You only have to get one of these games in Utah. You're not trying to beat this team in five games. This is not going to be that kind of series. You don't have your best player. Utah's competent, so you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna have to fight this team. So you're only trying to get a game. I don't prefer to look allow. Jalen Brunson and them dudes who are coming off a big game with a lot of confidence, let them go into Utah and see what they got in game three. Let them see what they got. Maybe they're able to steal another one. And then maybe Luka's more healthy for game four. Or maybe you don't even push him for game four. Maybe say, okay, we got one in Utah. We'll save him for game five. And now maybe he's 100% by game five. I don't know. Maybe it's weird to kind of play that kind of game of chess with an injury but particularly a calf it just makes me very wary of trying to push it in terms of bringing them back early an ankle a bad thumb or something like that i feel like yeah you tape it up and you go uh, those soft tissue injuries those scare me a little bit more in terms of pushing it especially when you got some cushion like jalen brunson bought you some time cleaver bought you some time with those heroic performances in game two they were down 0-2. Maybe you argue you just give up. But maybe you argue, look, I, I got to give myself a shot. I'm throwing them out there in game three. Because maybe, I don't know, maybe they feel like they want to go all in on this season. I, I think that would be dumb, but that that could be what they want to do. But in this situation, I, I'd be more inclined to to, to say, well, we'll hold you out for game three and get ready for game four if you're ready. And if we win game three, maybe we'll even hold you game four and get you ready for game five. But it's just a pathetic performance by Utah. I mean, just you expect a team that's been through the war that they've been through, suffered the heartbreak that they've been through, to just comport themselves much better in situations like this when they're gifted a situation with Luka being out and you win game one and you're just, from a talent standpoint, so superior to your opponent. You expect that team to take care of business. Doesn't mean they won't still win this series. They may win these two games in Utah. They may still win this series in five. But that just was bad. I just didn't like seeing it. You know. Speaking of, you know, history and Dallas involved. I remember like the year Dallas won the championship with Dirk and Tyson Chandler and Sean Marion Kid running the point. I remember like they were up two oh against Portland. They were playing as a Portland team that was again. They were very. They were much better than. It was. A, it was maybe like a four. It might have been like this, like a four or five series. It was because the Lakers, I think, were the number one seed and they beat the Lakers in the second round. It, were, it was a four or five matchup. Dallas was four. Portland was five. But Dallas was way more talented. Obviously, they won a championship. In Portland, you know, they had the you know Brandon Roy with the bad knee and you know Aldridge trying to just put it all together with that team. And Dallas, you know, manhandles them the first two games. And you say, okay, you know, 
good sign. Dallas has had some postseason heartbreaks in the past, but you know you want to see them put this team away. This is not a team that should compete with them. Good for them to win the first two games, but let's get this sweep and get out of there. And then you know Brandon Roy has these like miraculous. I think he had a miraculous game four. I want to say they lose game three. He went crazy in game four. You know after you know being a shell of himself most of that playoff, most of that season. And all of a sudden, the team that thought they were going to coast to an easy, <laughs> an easy you know postseason uh, advancement is now sitting there saying, "Oh, we're going back to Dallas, tied two two. This is a real series." And it's like, "Come on, man! Like you're supposed to show more maturity here. You you know what it's about. You've blown these kind of situations before." Dallas righted the ship, went on to win a championship. No harm, no foul. So it doesn't mean that Utah can't, but you don't want again. You don't want to see it. And it's not necessarily the greatest omen to see it happen so early. But yes, I did want to save the last series for the Warriors versus Denver. I feel like I've just been so off, I think, this year on just my temperature checks on some of these matchups. Uh, right now, things are looking very good in terms of like my bracket and the predictions of how things are going. Like series that thought that would go long, going very short, and maybe even the opposite direction, like the Toronto series with Philly. Series that thought would be just washouts like the New Orleans. Sun series or the Bucks Bowl series, like the just dog fights down to the wire. Um, I feel like I feel like the, the, the Grizzlies Timberwolves series, series, I feel like I had a decent pulse on. I had the Nets going up, and you know at least playing those first two games, I've been winning that series there down too. It's not a good look for me so far. I may not be able to predict it well, but I feel like I can read what's happening very well. So hopefully you're getting a decent analysis from this podcast. But when we talk about this last series from the Warriors and the Nuggets perspective, again another series totally misread the room. I had the Warriors winning like a six game series, I think. But I thought this would be a tough series. And they could still win a six-game series. But I think besides the obvious Raptors series where they're down 3-0, so that does look like the most obvious sweep. This, to me, going into the first games on the road, going into game three for all these series before we even saw this Raptors game unfold, this actually felt like the biggest sweep. Like This one felt like the one that was most likely to go just four games. I've been... Pretty stunned at just how non-competitive the Nuggets have been in this series against the Warriors. And maybe I shouldn't have been, but the Warriors just looked so hapless down the stretch. Draymond Green said that they lacked toughness. They weren't defending anybody. The offense looked a little broken, especially without Steph Curry. Curry was coming back in the foot sprain. They're telling me he's on a minutes limit. He can't start. I'm like, this doesn't look good. This is like, they're like, they're going to have a real fight this first round. This is the, these are the parameters that we're in the playoffs in. Team that's soft, that's missing their best player, come back on a foot spring that can't start, has to play 20 minutes a night. I don't like, I don't like signing up for that going into a playoff series. But unlike what we see from the Bucks and the Jazz, Suns, I give a break. They, you know, they had an injury. But the, I'll put the Suns and the Bucks and Jazz in there as teams that have been a little disappointing in terms of taking care of business. Warriors, they did flip the switch. But it was an unlikely hero. Who did it? It wasn't now Steph was amazing in game two. Draymond, his defense on Jokic has been stellar. So I don't want to gloss over the usual suspects for Golden State. They're doing what we would expect them to do. Clay Thompson, still a sniper. But how about Jordan Poole, man? Jordan Poole has just been flat out electric in the starting lineup with Steph Curry out. I saw a tweet that was hilarious that was just like, man, imagine just getting bludgeoned by Klay Thompson and Jordan Poole. <laughs> then you go to the bench and Steph Curry's coming in. I mean, you know, it's like, it's like you know, 
It's like playing the Yankees murderers row and then Barry Bonds is pinch hitting. You know, you're like, oh man, <laughs> it's as if I thought this couldn't get worse. That's kind of what Denver's reality is right now. But Jordan Poole, just a shout out to this an amazing season from him overall. And shout out to him really stepping up in these first two games. He knows that Denver has no way that can guard him, which is accurate. We're seeing it in this series. And Golden State is running their offense extremely efficiently. Denver is not the greatest defensive team. I still didn't think they would get this. I still didn't think they looked look this inept guarding Golden State, but that's where we're at. And this just looks like a the Warriors are putting, to me, they're putting the league on notice a little bit of how they dominate these first two games. And I just don't think that, I don't think the Nuggets can do anything going on back home. They are kind of similar to the Hawks where I think you say they get back at home, they play in front of a good crowd, mile high air, and the whole, all the cliches that go with playing in Denver. You say, oh, they'll be better when they get on the, at, at, at home. I, I don't see that here. They can't guard them. They're fighting on the bench. You got Will Barton bickering with DeMarcus Cousins during timeouts. It's funny, me and Kendall, we do it every time we talk about the, the playoffs. We've done it on the air before where we'll say, which which matchups have the most obvious playoff scuffle potential situations? Looking at one player on one team, one player on another team, and saying, which, which, which matchups do you see as t- players that you know will probably get into it at some point during their first-round matchup, or any of these matchups in the future or whatever? And I told Kendall before I came on the air tonight, I was like, we, we should have done a which team that may fall apart in the playoffs has teammates that will get after it and have some kind of scuffle on the bench or in the locker room or something like that. And I said, because if we would have been doing that, then Will Barton and DeMarcus Cousins would have been very high in my, in, my, uh, in my draft there. They would have been, you know, pure lottery pick talent for picking teammates that were going to get after each other as their teams fall apart. But yeah, Denver, I don't know what the hell's going on there. And then the, the, the post-game press conferences. I mean, Monty Morris is like, oh, yeah, guys had to get stuff off their chests and things that should have been talked about during the regular season, and we're now talking about them now. So I'm like, now? This might be literally the worst time for you guys to figuring out things that need to be talked about months ago. You're in the playoffs playing against Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, and the Warriors. Like, right now. Now's the time that we have to figure out issues that should have been handled months ago. Will Barton explaining the incident with Cousins saying, oh, that was some goofy-ish. I don't, I don't hear that much else to say about it. He apologized to his, to his teammates, but didn't really seem to be all that interested in apologizing to Cousins or trying to square that away. Nikola Jokic, you know, kind of seeing this all, he got ejected in game two. He, uh, Jokic is a great player. I don't like these ejections where I feel like he quits on his team when he does this. I've seen him do it multiple times. Things aren't going well. They're getting blown out. He doesn't get a call. He does something so he does something so egregious or 
goes at a ref in such a flagrant manner where you know he's going to get ejected. He knows he's going to get ejected. And he only does it when they have no chance to win. Yeah, to me, he's quitting on his team. If I see, I, I'm tired of seeing it. I'm going to call it out every time. He did it in the you know conference semifinals or finals, whenever they played the um, I can't remember them. Uh, Phoenix last year, conference semifinals against Phoenix last year, and he's he doing. He did it again in a couple nights ago. I'm sick of it. But in the post game, they asked him, "Yo, man, things don't seem to be going well." But I heard you guys had some kind of great locker room meeting or players only thing where you guys aired out your grievances. How'd that go? And Jokic was like, "I don't know. It sounded like just a bunch of talk to me." So. Needless to say, things are going great for Denver as they go back to to, to Colorado down 0-2. Mike Malone, who's normally a pretty pretty sharp with his words when his team underachieves the way they have so far, he seems to be in the press conferences just begging for his team to stay together, which is like, I'm, I just don't, this is stunning to me. I didn't know Denver was in this kind of strife, but that's, what, that's, that's the only way I can describe it. Like, things are terrible there right now. But we'll see how the rest of this playoffs go go down, man. I, I I'm really enjoying them so far. Shout out to some of the great performances we've had: Brunson, DeRozan, Jimmy Butler, Anthony Edwards in Game One. Playoffs is where you make your name, man. Also, playoffs is where players who are not up to it they'll crumble. We've seen some subpar performances. We've seen you know D'Angelo Russell struggling. We've seen Trey Young struggling. Jokic, who's going to rise up like Joel Embiid did tonight and deliver? Who's going to fold? We'll we'll keep watching. It's been fun so far. That's going to do it for this edition of New Generation Sports Talk, solo edition of Sports Talk. I can't remember the last time I did a solo edition of Sports Talk, but I actually been wanting, not to say that I've been (laughs) wanting Kendall not to be on the show, but I've been kind of curious and interested in doing a solo show at some point and just the circumstances of this week that's been crazy for all of us on new generation media and the family as a whole it allowed the opportunity for there to be a solo show done this week so i said you know what why not do one now hope you guys enjoyed it of course if you enjoyed this podcast episode check out all of our shows on new generation podcast network that's apple podcast spotify soundcloud stitcher and tune in also, be sure to check us out on YouTube, New Generation Media. We just posted a new YouTube video, uh, a new NBA versus NBA draft versus installment starring Chet Holmgren versus Jalen Duran. You know, me being a Gonzaga fan, Kendall being a Memphis fan, that that was a very engaging conversation. You guys check that out. I'm sure you guys will enjoy it. You can find that New Generation Media on YouTube. Follow us individually on social media. I'm on Twitter, EJ underscore Stewart, Instagram, Max, and EJ. You can also follow the social media accounts for New Generation Media. On uh, Twitter, New Generation Pod, Instagram, New Generation Podcast. You also can find us on Facebook, New Generation Media as well. But I think that's going to do it for this edition of New Generation Sports Talk and NBA Playoff Recap so far. We'll be back next week with more sports talk. Kendall will probably be back as well. We'd love to get his, his insight on how these games have gone. That's going to do it for now. For EJ Stewart, or I am EJ Stewart, 
Uh, this is EJ Stewart signing off. I'm so used, not used to doing these uh, clothes by myself, but this is EJ Stewart signing off. We'll see you guys next week. Peace.